When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we've got two movies about body snatchers, but not the 1950s kind, so much as the cyberpunk future kind. Scott, tell us what we have selected for upload this week. Rupert Sanders' new remake of the 1995 anime classic Ghost in the Shell has had a hard time in theaters and a hard time with cultural critics who objected from the start to the casting of Scarlett Johansson as Major, better known as Motoko Kusanagi. Complaints of character whitewashing have dominated the conversation about the movie. We'll get into that a bit here, but there are a lot of other elements of the movie worth discussing. And one of the big ones is the way the live-action Ghost in the Shell draws inspiration from American science fiction touchstones like the 1989 future thriller The Matrix, which suggested that we're all living in a depressing simulation built by hostile artificial intelligences using our bodies as living batteries. Both versions of Ghost in the Shell deal with a woman trying to reconcile the gap between her android body and her living mind, and The Matrix has a similar form of science fiction dysmorphia, with a protagonist who has to choose between a comforting fiction and the grim battles going on in the real world. And also, the grim battles going on in the real world, plus the grim battles going on in the real world. All right, Scott, you're, you're glitching a little bit there. I want to go check in with my meat body for a second while we reboot this podcast and get you back online. Please join us after the break. Bloop, bloop. <laughs> the Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Looking at The Matrix today, it's a little hard to remember how revolutionary and mind-blowing its special effects were when it first hit screens in 1999. 
Writer-directors Lana and Lily Wachowski had only directed one film at that point, the neo-noir Bound, which flipped the script on the usual noir movie pattern by making both the dopey, tough protagonist and the slinky femme fatale into women, but otherwise keeping all the genre signifiers intact. It was a pretty heady art house idea at the time, but apart from the daring lesbian angle, it's a narratively small film that doesn't rely on special effects or big action set pieces to bring the story across. Coming after Bound, The Matrix was a major surprise. Its bullet time effects seemed revolutionary, and its big challenging science fiction ideas were new to a lot of the summer blockbuster crowd encountering it. But Bound was steeped in movie history and a sense of genre fandom. To noir fans, its beats were familiar, and a lot of the enjoyment of the movie came from the way it reordered and reimagined those beats. The same went for The Matrix, which drew heavily on Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey and the Wachowskis' favorite anime stories like Akira, Megazone 23, and Ghost in the Shell. The Matrix also brought in inspirations from Harlan Ellison's short story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, William Gibson's novel Neuromancer, and Doctor Who. It's an amalgam of philosophical ideas from Immanuel Kant and Karl Marx, mixed with philosophy from Japanese science fiction, which is just as interested in the question of human identity and states of being, and our ability to create meaning out of our worlds. That's all pretty potent stuff coming out of a movie that looks like a goth runway show with guns and a lot of wall-walking slow-mo. But the Wachowskis have openly said that the movie is about the search for and creation of meaning, about people's need to undergo enlightenment, and then assert their own definitions of the world. But even if they weren't steeping the story in all these large, abstract ideas about the nature of our relationship with our bodies and our environment, The Matrix would still be pretty intense entertainment, thanks to martial arts choreography by Chinese master Yuan Wuping, groundbreaking visual effects by the Wachowskis' regular effects artist, John Gaeta, and a cast capable of bringing a dark, grim, straight-faced sheen to the outsized material. Even if you didn't buy into The Matrix as a thought experiment exploration of being an identity, it still looked like nothing else on screens in 1999, and it's no wonder that the industry leaped to copy it in every way it could. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? This can't be what? Be real? So how, how does The Matrix hold up for you guys? It's been nearly 20 years at this point, and it's based in special effects that have certainly aged. We're not going to use the word dated, but, you know, the, the industry has changed a lot. How, how does this movie hold up for you after all of the, the films that have imitated it? I was not expecting it to hold up as well as it did for me. I was pleasantly surprised revisiting this for probably the first time in 15 years. And I I wouldn't even like call out the effects so much uh, outside of maybe like some of the exteriors of the the real world, I guess, (laughs) the the non-matrix that look a little like early CGI. But what struck me most watching this is how well it moves. Like I I watched this back to back with Ghost in the Shell. I, I saw Ghost in the Shell first at the theater. And Ghost in the Shell is just over 100 minutes, and The Matrix is two hours and 15 minutes. And Ghost in the Shell felt so much longer <laughs> than The Matrix. <laughs> you know, for a movie that has a certain like deliberateness to its pacing, it really just has its foot on the gas from the get-go, from that big opening scene with Trinity. And I was, I was in it from there. Yeah, I, mean, I thought it held up great, too. And I think the special effects are still quite special and uh, i was reminded watching it too how much it owes to the hong kong action cinema of, of john woo and, and chow yun fat earlier in the decade i mean you mentioned yuan wu peng of course is a grandmaster of all choreographers and so you have that going for it but it's also you know that cinema of cool with the balletic action and, and the sunglasses and the you know the emphasis on on style and aesthetic beauty over physics 
Uh, so it was a pleasant throwback to that era of action filmmaking while also, I think, looking ahead to a lot of type movies that we're seeing now, like Ghost in the Shell and a bunch of just a whole bunch of other films that uh, were inspired by the same ideas. Yeah, for as much as this has been imitated, to me, this, this film is still astonishing. I mean, I loved it when I saw it with fairly low expectations in 1999. I didn't really know what I was walking into. And I, I love it now. I mean, there are moments that have been so ripped off and parodied and repeated, but like, Carrie-Ann Moss freezing in midair as the camera moves around her and Lawrence Fishburne just flying through the air. I mean, this this stuff's amazing to me. And I think it helps that the Wachowskis are just natural filmmakers beyond mastering these special effects. They, like you say, they know how to keep it moving. Like the scenes really move. It's not just even just the pacing. It's just sort of the rhythm of various scenes. Like nothing outstays its welcome. Everything moves as it's supposed to. I, I'm a great admirer of this film. And just, it just reminded me how much I, I enjoy the Wachowskis as filmmakers, even though I'm not always on board with all their movies, including the sequels to this one. Keith, uh, a couple episodes ago when we were talking about Alien and you, we were talking about sequels, you mentioned The Matrix is one that, you know, you think maybe the sequels have kind of lessened its standing in your I'll, mind. I'll throw that you, out the window. Yeah, yeah. yeah. After revisiting, I'll throw that out the window. I think, and I maybe I'd like to revisit the sequels too, but I think part of the problem you run into with this movie is, you know, so much about it is this basic sort of philosophical, let's strip away what we know and what we understand. The, the central metaphor is so beautiful. It's like sort of like, you know, the world you think, you know, you don't because, you know, you, you have limited tools to understand it. So let's, let's show you this. I think the problem is where you go from there is a little, a little more perilous, you know, mm-hmm. it's not kind of like, you know, some of the philosophy they're drawing on, like, like Nietzsche and Marx are, are much better at, at, at assessing the problems than, than providing any sort of solutions. And to, you know, the sequels had to kind of rebuild the world in a way and offer mm-hmm. sort of a way forward. And uh, to me, that's a little less exciting of a prospect in some ways and, and a little harder to get to. But we're not here to, to disparage well, the sequels. It, it, though it is illuminating, I think, to talk about the sequels in order to talk about what works in this movie, I think for one, the sequels just had a there, that balance between f- philosophy and action was just thrown off mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the sequels, which were often dense. Was it the second one where you're in a room full of televisions with some guy and he goes on for like 20 minutes? Or is that the third one? Yes, maybe both, but uh, definitely the second one. Um, I think it was the second <laughs> yeah. one. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, and I know our, our friends, uh, Noel, Noel Murray and Donna Moment are particularly fond of the second one for that, for that reason. So there's that element too, but also, um, this is a good origin story, and, and even though I think the film, The Matrix, begins um, not with Neo, you know, the, the world of the film is revealed through him and his experience and things that he discovers and we discover along with him. You know, and so we get this wonderful introduction to this world, which is a much different experience than knowing it already and then having to explore it further and getting into the, uh, a denser mythology or, or what have you. I mean, this is a origin story that really works. I mean, one of the interesting things about the sequel, I think, is the Wachowskis were really not into publicity back around the time that The Matrix came out. I mean, both of them were pre-transition and both of them were just very uncomfortable with with the press and the public. Um, and they stayed behind the scenes. So people were kind of left to interpret these uh, the, these movies on their own, particularly the first one, without very much of that kind of filmmaker telling, stepping in and telling them what to think. And it wasn't really until Cloud at that they did like big publicity tours and appeared on camera and talked in their own words at great length about their own work. And then it kind of emerged that what they were trying to do with the Matrix trilogy 
was in particular the first movie sets up the world and then the second movie is meant to completely deconstruct that world and then the third movie is meant to kind of reconciliate and recreate that world. So it's all like a gigantic hero's journey and also a kind of an Immanuel Kant idea writ large. But when you, you start off with a movie that's this groundbreaking and this exciting to fans and then the next thing you want to do is step back from it, deconstruct it, intellectualize it and, and step away from all of the signifiers that people loved about it or just repeat them mechanically, which the second sequel did both of those things. You're giving people something that they really love and then taking it away and saying, you were wrong to love this. This needs to be taken apart in pieces. And I think that's part of the problem. The first one is just kind of adrenaline-fueled <laughs> adrenaline-fueled caffeine, I think, to, to mix my drugs. I mean, it, it really does. It moves along very quickly. And I think part of that is just because in a lot of action movies, there's a little bit of a strain to justify all of the action sequences you need to, to get the kind of pacing you want, you know, to force your characters into situations where the effects make sense, the action makes sense. The idea behind the action in The Matrix is so tied into the story. It's so tied into like everything that the characters are thinking and doing and the, and the progression of the story. It all just feels very natural. Yeah, and like the way it's built with them having to go into and out of the Matrix, like the action scenes are always built about them getting out of the Matrix in some way, like having to get to a telephone. And like that is just kind of baked into the way this world works. I mean, the one thing that did throw me, there were there were places here and there where I think you can see the seams and the effects. I think a lot of them do hold up really well. But the the thing that least worked for me, I think, on this rewatch is the performances. I've written about this whole idea of the, the scary emotionless future where people aren't really allowed to feel emotions because the government outlaws them or takes them away. The, the government hasn't outlawed emotions here, but people are all, like, especially Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, and to some degree Lawrence Fishburne, they're all kind of operating in this space where the essence of cool is to never let them see you blink or sweat or flinch. And when Lawrence Fishburne gets torn down mid-movie, it's it's a big development. But I can't Reeves, I really don't like him as an actor. Oh, <laughs> This is like the perfect role for him. All, This is yeah. the perfect role for him. Well, this and John Wick, which is a very, very similar, like, what we need for this is a wooden man with no range of emotions. No. And even no, so. No, that's not good. I've grown so fond the of The Keanu Reeves thing has already been adjudicated yeah, in his favor, <laughs> Tasha. You, yeah. you've, you've missed out on this whole... Uh, I know Kung Fu. <laughs> well, I mean, he didn't write the dialogue and, and he delivers, I think he delivers that line really well and also I mean I was just admiring <laughs> how much his performance his physical performance changes over the course of this movie like how in that first scene in the office building how awkward he is just moving from one cubicle mm-hmm. to another you know he really conveys the impossibility of him stepping on the ledge like there's no way you can step on that ledge you can't do it and by the end I mean just so fluid and so confident I don't know I, I like Keanu Reeves in general and, and I like him in this movie not in not particular. to get all extra textual on you but I'm going to get all extra textual on you part of that is because uh, he had a serious back injury and they filmed all of the like the non-action like the office scenes like anything where he wasn't trying to do high kicks or martial arts they filmed all that stuff first so the stuff where he's doing like balladic action was after his spine had healed and he could move again yeah well so he makes it work you use what you're given whether that's you know spinal injury whether that's sort of like chameleonic uh, range as an actor or uh, a back injury that gives you exactly the performance that you need But it is, I think, a, a good point to say that there is an element of performance that is purely physical. I mean, if people want to criticize Keanu Reeves, it typically has to do with the way he delivers his dialogue. But this is a very physical performance. And then you jump ahead 
to today and what he's doing in the John Wick films and just the way he moves across the space. I mean, it's mesmerizing and that's him and that's him using his body and that's part of acting too. It's not just how you emote on screen, which I think he does perfectly well here and elsewhere too. But, um, yeah, but... And, and I'll, I'll cop to liking the I Know Kung Fu line delivery. I think it's like a perfect encapsulation of how Keanu Reeves does comedy, which is like just so, so, so understated to the point where you're not even sure if he knows that it's supposed to be a funny line. But to go back to your original point about kind of the seriousness of the performances in this Tasha like I'll be honest like I kind of completely forgotten about the the larger crew of the Nebuchadnezzar but I think like a lot of those little supporting characters most of whom are killed before the end of the movie do add a little life and a different texture to the performances outside of that kind of main trifecta of Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne and Carrie Ann Moss who I agree are all kind of working in the same mode. But then I think also Hugo Weaving is working in that same mode, but at a different volume. So I, I think there there is some texture to the performances here, even if the three performances that we think of as being central to the movie are a little similar to each other. I think Weaving is brilliantly playing it as dark comedy in a way that, mm-hmm. that really helps the movie as well. I, I love that performance. I love that performance, too. I just for me, there's a world of difference between his intimidating rigidity and Keanu Reeves kind of dopey rigidity. I mm. uh, like rewatching that the scene at the end where he he wakes up from death and. Uh, and he's kind of he's pulling off the you know you are no longer a bother to me i have uh, i have transcended and i don't even see why i was ever afraid of you the look on his face is just so it's meant to be kind of detached and casual and wondering and instead it just it looks dopey to me he looks dopey at least 50 percent of the time to me in this movie and in general let's call that wow. a something we'll just all have to deal with and accept tasha's views in our own way <laughs> I, I, but on. i think we can all agree that his suits have gotten a lot better between this and john wick <laughs> there, there's like one shot of him as neo like in a what's supposed to be a tailored black suit but it's like tailored in the late 90s fashion and i was like Oh, man, you look so much better as John Wick. <laughs> the, the clothing in John Wick is very flashy. Well, I mean, let's talk about the costume aesthetic. Like the goth look, the long black trench coats and the, the form-fitting latex and the designer sunglasses were just such a touchstone for this film uh, back in 1999. And it all looks really cool, I, I think, still, but I, but I still like the goth aesthetic. And I like I like the way they pull it off. At the same time, having recently watched like the latest Underworld movie, which is still using that aesthetic in 2017, I can see where people might look at it and, and think it looks pretty ridiculous now. Like, how does that all work for you? It feels like kind of like in the early 90s when when cyberpunk first became like this mainstream thing. Like when every rock star started referencing William Gibson and, and Billy Idol put out like that album Cyberpunk and it had like this the, all these cliches. He feels like those, those cliches kind of kind of went to college and grew up and got a respectable job. <laughs> <laughs> I think it works. I mean, I I, I I I like it. Yeah, I think they work really well in the context of the movie because like those costumes that we think of as the costumes of the movie, those are just what they're wearing in the Matrix. But when we see them in the real world in the Nebuchadnezzar, like everyone's in these like very ill fitting knitted like hand-me-down dirty garments so it makes sense that like when they are in the matrix and they are in this world where they can project themselves however they want they are in this like very sleek black intimidating wardrobe that they don't have in the in the real world and i think as a point of contrast they work really well whether like they hold up fashion wise i don't think that 
necessarily matters because they work so well in the context of the movie. Hmm. What about the bullet time effects? How do, they, how do those look to you today? I cheered at the first one. I was like, <laughs> I was like yay, there it is! Like when, uh, when Trinity jumps up and the, the camera spins. Like it's just... Like it, it is something we've seen so many times. But does anyone do it better? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they not only had, they have, they have the tools, they know how to use the tools as well. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and just the the way it is deployed in that in that opening, I can't put my finger on why it works so well, but it does work really well. I think still. You know, I was reading up on how they did that, and like how they developed previous camera tricks, and and actually some like really old photographic tricks uh, that were used to to make that design, and how they basically basically they were doing something that has been done a lot before, where you surround something with cameras and trigger them all at the same time, and then like you can create a a surround thing from that. What they did was time them with computers, so they were like microseconds off. So instead of firing all at once, they were firing in sequence. And as a result, those those bullet time sequences are shot in 12,000 frames per second as opposed to the usual 24. And it's like, A, no wonder it still holds up today. Yeah. Uh, and B, I would think that there are probably a lot of people that tried to duplicate it and like cheaped out on that mm. because just the computing time, I, I imagine it was a very expensive process and that people were like, oh, we could lower that way, way down. And as a result, just didn't get that like the smoothness of the You're burning film too, and mm-hmm. not just effects, but film at that speed, you're just going right through it. Oh, celluloid. Wasn't that, wasn't that a great time, everybody? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's interesting watching The Matrix again and the, the effects, which I enjoy immensely, mostly because the film itself sets a context for them. But I went up resenting the contribution that The Matrix made to effects. This is an old thing I've said a million times, but you know, it sort of started this new era or continued this new era of CGI where anything was possible in terms of human action and nothing was certain in terms of understanding the impact of those actions. Um, in fact, I was just watching recently the beginning of the film Doctor Strange, uh, a movie that is one of many that owes something to The Matrix. And just the accident that mangles the doctor's hands would have just killed a normal person like a dozen times over. Have you seen this? The car just goes, flips over and over down a cliff. And I think there's a thing now where there's a plasticity now to effects that limits their physical impact. You know, I think you see that also in the Fast and the Furious movies, though, but that's an argument for another time. No? Yes. I mean, I think there are certain rules. What are the rules? What are the rules here? Well, I think there are, I think you kind of intuit the rules as you go along in this one. And I think by the third one, that actually is a problem. Because the big, I remember the big climactic fight at the end. You know, I don't know what the rules are. These people seem to, can, to do anything. Watching, the end of the third movie. In the third movie, yeah, it's like watching like a superhero battle where everyone has every superpower ever, mm-hmm. and you know, the, I don't know what the stakes are at that point. But I get what you're saying. I, I guess with everything being possible, it's, it's gotten a little harder to find an actual thrill if you don't go all cartoony like the, the Fast and Furious movies. Though I think we've seen a counter reaction to that with John Wick mm-hmm. and this yeah, successful, jo- successful the John Wick movies, which is like one headshot after another and, and very definitive and uh, visceral deaths. And a lot of, not unedited, but very traditionally edited fight scenes where you can actually see what's happening versus your Michael Bay style. But uh, this actually, uh, the action here is really well staged, though, I will say Oh, yeah, no, no, I'm not comparing this to that. This is like, this this is is one of those exceptions that proves the rule type thing. And and, and some really good shootouts. Like you mentioned, the gunplay, the gunfu and John Wick, like there's an element of that here, too, as well, Mm -hmm. especially in that that lobby shootout Mm -hmm. with, I mean, 
I'm not a gun person, but that was some pretty fun gunplay uh, that, in this that, movie. That scene is so awesome. It makes me so uncomfortable because it's such a, a fetishization of uh, just going someplace and shooting everyone up, you know, and it. Yeah, it's, it's a great scene. Well, it doesn't sit all that well sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And like the immediately preceding that, kind of going back to the idea of like the little touches of humor in this movie, the we're going to need guns and just the whoosh of miles and miles of shells of shelves of guns. It's a cool moment. And it's a, kind of this movie's version of a laugh out loud moment, I think. It is kind of a cool moment and a laugh out loud moment. But it's also a moment that kind of reminds us like that the limit here is still on people. Like we, you can have a million guns you can choose from a million guns you can't carry a million guns yeah. <laughs> like the the fantasy is sort of i'm gonna gear myself up so much that i have a whole bag of guns but you can't carry more than that you know it's not a video game where you can just like keep pulling things out of nowhere or you know pick up a gun off of every person you see looping back to john wick those movies have stopped working for me a bit because it just feels like John Wick is so powerful at this point and because, you know, the increasingly gigantic mobs of people who attack him <laughs> follow the age old tradition of let's all circle around him and charge him one at a time to get killed. One of the things I think is so cool about The Matrix and so compelling is that the idea that the agents can take over anyone. So every battle with them becomes kind of a run and gun battle where you're trying to get away from everything and everyone. The The effect of the agents basically jumping into people and taking them mm -hmm. over, I think, is one of the most intimidating things in this movie. Because you kind of end up with a situation where, like, in John Wick, the whole world is against him. But that's fine. He's just going to shoot them all one by one. Here, the whole world is against Neo. And that means no matter how many people he shoots, there's going to be just the agents are just going to take the next person on the block. Yeah. Going back to effects, I think that is a, a really effective effect still, the way that the agents kind of take over the bodies of the people in the Matrix and kind of speaks to something I wanted to bring up briefly, which is the body horror elements in, in this movie, which I had completely forgotten about, like the bug. Oh, my God, the bug. <laughs> well, I mean, Tasha laid out a lot of clear influences on this, mm -hmm. but you could have kept going. I mean, this, oh, yeah. movie, this movie steals and I think gleefully and, and, and openly steals from so many different sources like through every possible source of inspiration. But yeah, the sort of Cronenbergian body mm -hmm. horror, when, like when his mouth is seen, oh, the, yeah. that's one of the most effective uses of digital. It's a very simple use, but I think it's one of the best uses of digital effects in this movie. I'm not even it's, sure it's digital. I, I really? like when he's, mm. when he's moving his mouth and uh, it just seems like it's kind of gummed over. Yeah. Like that seemed like a pretty practical effect. I, I, whatever works. I think, I think it's whatever a mix. Because I, I, was, I was watching very carefully. I think it's a practical effect that, that's then goosed with CGI. Makes uh, sense. But you're right. It's, it's very Cronenbergian. And did they really have a bug climb into his belly button? Is that, was that was that a practical effect? <laughs> yeah, it, that it took like twelve shots, and then he had to have surgery because his, his abdomen was like full of centipedes. No, uh, I didn't want to list all of them because I wanted to give you guys a chance to weigh in on kind of what you see as the influences here, or, or what you think about them. I mean, the Wachowskis have always been very clear that they're they're voracious consumers of comic books and uh, science fiction, everything and anime and manga and just like all of these and philosophy my god um so many things that they draw from different things like what do you what do you see as the important influences here this is all blind spot stuff for me anime comic books <laughs> that's just not my not my area so i can't really let me let me ask well, you this which is in your area scott right. one of the when i was reading about like different interviews that they'd done one of the things i ran across was oh the visual look of the film was deeply inspired by 2001 a space odyssey hmm. no elaboration on that whatsoever and that was one that i found a little hard to see do you see that in the no, movie at all no not at all i, I see you, it in the white 
when they go to the simulation where it's mm-hmm. all the white room and sort of like these elements drawn from his memory. I think the idea at the end of 2001 being that this whole idea of this hotel room is being created from the astronaut's idea of what a hotel would look like. There's a little bit of that going on in that whole sequence. It's a very cleanly composed, simply designed, not simply designed, but you know what I'm saying? It's just, uh, you know, the, uh, Kubrick was uh, into clarity and, and a certain amount of minimalism, which is a strange quality to ascribe to the Matrix. But it, I think it shows you all, what it needs to show you and nothing more. Hmm. Um, I would not look at it and say, hey, that looks like 2001. But if they want to cite that influence, then I, I suppose uh, I can squint and see it. Well, I know Grant Morrison got a little sniffy about it because he thought it was a little bit too much like The Invisibles. But I, I don't I can see that being a source of inspiration. But it feels like they're kind of drawing from the same common influences, this idea of a secret society or, you know, a group of people that can take down the, the systems of the control that secretly run the world. I don't know. On the other hand, I'm, I'm sure they read The Invisibles. <laughs> they read every, Like you said, they read everything. Yeah, the Doctor Who stuff is apparently very much out of there's a specific a set of episodes about like a giant computer that you can go into wow. and be in a simulation where you can yeah. explore the world. I and it's all classic. Who also Alice through the Looking Glass, which the uh, yeah. the movie makes no bones about. That is a uh, very is direct a, it, reference. It is, it is. Wow, it is really a mishmash of so many things, isn't it? And then and then you look at it the other way, which is how much it has impacted the culture at large. I mean, I think it's become an unfortunate cultural flashpoint recently, particularly on the red pill, blue pill thing. It's become a men's rights gamer oh, game. Yeah. We, got, we got to claim that metaphor back because I, I find to me, you take away everything else, just that central metaphor of waking up to how the world really works. You can apply it to so many things. Mm-hmm. To, you can apply I, I don't think you can apply it to men MRA cause, but I, I, I can see where it could be appropriate for that, but you can apply it to the patriarchy, you can apply it to capitalism, you can apply it to whatever you want to. It's, it's The more you learn about the AI taking over the world and how all that stuff works and the actual way the world functions that's to me is less interesting than as using that as a means to an end to talk about the world we live in now and i think that more than anything else is why this movie is so resonant still well i think it caught on because there's an arrogance to it right of saying i'm red pilling it right now i'm telling you how the world as sure. it really is and that's the way that i see it you know right. not the way that these pc idiots say so, you know what i'm saying like yeah, that. yeah. Uh, um, so the, it really is a nice metaphor for jerks and I mean, within the film, it's specifically about like you can live a comfortable life or you can make a choice to embrace misery in the name of helping other people, in the name of possibly ending this system that we're living under. So when you claim that you're red pilling, you're basically saying anybody who doesn't embrace my philosophy has consciously chosen to be deluded. And like that's, <laughs> yeah. that's just an appealing form of assholery right there. <laughs> this is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Speaking of the whole AI uh, takeover thing that you mentioned, Keith, like one of the the biggest things that's been held up as a plot hole for this film is the fact that uh, humans aren't exothermic enough to be power sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really bothers. I don't like this film anymore because that <laughs> that to me is just now that since I learned that, I just I feel like it all falls apart. Well, there I mean there are a handful. You joke, but there are a handful of things that have been like held up over and over because people care about this movie so much. It's one of those movies that every single instance 
sense of it has been picked apart. Did you know that parsec is not actually a <laughs> unit to measure time? You're getting sarcasm all over the pop screen. <laughs> it's it's not going to work as a pop screen anymore. <laughs> so I take it that there is no objection to this film story that has that holds water with you. That's what I'm hearing. Throw out some more, but it's certainly not that one. Oh. I have one and it doesn't it by no means like ruins the movie for me but it is something that like kind of makes me pause and think is like so if AI has completely subdued humanity and you know is farming them at this point why does the matrix need to exist why do humans have to have this world that they live in why can't they just be subjugated and farmed and not know anything because they were born and live in this little pod i mean i think they address that when they talk about like why the world is messed up and it's because like they basically say it's because you know we tried to make you utopia and you wouldn't accept it like you couldn't live in a perfect world you kept questioning it i think that there's an implication there that they tried other options which might have included you're all slaves on a farm or might have included you're all just asleep all the time and for whatever reason it didn't work. I, I think there's a history implied there of a series of experiments and this is the one that worked for the system that they want. Yeah. I, but I can see, I yeah. can certainly it see It doesn't seem that. like the best use of resources is all I'm saying. <laughs> like if I were in charge of HR and the AI dominated uh, HR, AIHR There we go. If I was ahead of AIHR. I think they need humans to sustain the metaphor that keeps their society. Humans are like, they're not exothermic enough to be powerful sources, but they're storytellers enough to be really good, like, metaphor generators. I can't imagine dwelling on something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I, that's just a part of a film I'm not going to th- sweat over, ever. <laughs> I, okay, just, well, do that. well, I have a, a part that I want to discuss, which I do not like, and, and kind of kept this from being a completely positive experience for me, which is Trinity, and the Sleeping Beauty kiss at the end. And, yeah, and... Th- I was going to bring that up. It's like that That is a plot point that bugs me. Like, she literally raises him from the dead by kissing him and saying, I believe in you. Mm-hmm. And, like, the, her, her line is basically, I love you. Now get up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, like... Like, fine. I mean, that is also a long tradition that is being drawn on here, you know, the kiss bring you back life. But like, how does that work in the reality that the Matrix has created? Like, how can someone come back to life when they've died in the Matrix through true love's kiss? Like, I don't get how that fits you can into spackle the logic. over everything. It's a tale as old as time. <laughs> <laughs> you can spackle over everything with, well, he's the one. The rules yeah. don't apply to him because he's the one. But I find both the idea very cheesy, as I found it in the third movie when they did it again, and I find the execution of it just kind of dreadful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love Carrie Ann Moss as as an ass kicker, as the kind of mute figure in the background who exists to cheer him on. I mean, there is a reason when I wrote that essay, I called it Trinity Syndrome. Mm-hmm. She gets the most badass character introduction possibly up for a woman in an action film in the 1990s and then we kind of turn around and turn her into she's there to kiss him back to life yay i guess and there's something a little subversive in kind of taking that sleeping beauty thing and and flipping the genders but it really doesn't work for me like this whole story is about emotion versus machines humanity versus these like artificial emotionless constructs 
and she kind of comes across as more of an emotional construct than <laughs> some of those machines do. Yep. Like I, I believe in uh, Agent Smith's humanity a little more than I believe in hers. That essay got in my head, of course, watching this again because it, she is great. I mean, it is an amazing introduction, and she she has incredible presence. And and as a an action hero, I mean, she is remarkable. And then. There's no development of that character at all. I, I think if Carrie Ann Moss weren't so good in the role, it would be really troubling. But uh, fortunately, she is good. So in the news over the last uh, month or so, we found out that there's going to be a new Matrix movie. And there was a brief, pretty intense online flap uh, because it became very clear that the Wachowskis weren't going to be involved and people thought it was going to be a remake. Now we're hearing that it's going to be kind of a side story of some kind taking place in that setting. I'm curious what you guys think of more stories in this world and if there's anything in particular you want from a Matrix story in the 2010s. I've kind of given up on I may have said this before, but given up on thinking there are any bad ideas uh, when it comes to remakes, especially because I, I think Creed is a terrible idea. I think I think Fargo the TV series is a terrible idea, and yet <laughs> Creed is a really terrific movie, and I loved Fargo the series. So my first reaction is let's just let it be, especially since I felt like maybe we kind of wrung that universe dry with the, the second and third movie. But I don't know, and the Animatrix, and the, which I've never seen. No, the uh, Animatrix but, is yeah. like those stories are necessarily small because it's an anthology. Mm-hmm. But I think the Animatrix really shows the potential because it's it's one of those stories where you've got kind of the top level, the magic man from Happy Land comes along and he's the one and he literally can't die. And then he gets magical powers. And he can do whatever he wants. In the meantime, there are billions of people living much smaller lives, fighting much harder battles they can't hand wave their magic out of. And those stories are so much more interesting. Yeah. In the same way that Rogue One yeah, was. Yes, so I was going to say, it seems like they, they're kind of thinking of an Animatrix kind of Rogue One anthology film kind of thing. And it could be interesting. I don't know. Who's going to bake it? Uh, I don't directing? know that that's been... <laughs> <laughs> I think it should be the first big budget, full length narrative VR feature. <laughs> if a property ever lent itself to virtual reality movie making, this is it, right? And then at the end of the <laughs> VR experience, somebody comes along and just crams a red pill down your yep. throat and then the, the VR drops and you're just standing in an empty room. Exactly. Would that count as a movie, a virtual reality experience? I don't like, I don't like oh, this. I don't like the sound Scott, of this at all. Given how angry you are at, uh, at the move away from cellular to digital, you're going to be so no, angry no. when the, the VR well, I mean, revolution it's fun. comes. It's, it's a great, I mean, really, virtual reality sounds like a lot of fun. Don't call it a movie. Yeah, I feel like I'm. I'm. I'm <laughs> Still che- call it that. I'm, I'm Tobiasing virtual reality. <laughs> had a, I think it was a good run from the from the Simon to the iPad for me. But this is where technology and I kind of uh, part, part ways. Uh, I just I, my interest is pretty minimal. I know you know you can stand on on stage with the Grateful Dead uh, <laughs> and watch them play and walk around and all this great stuff that Tasha's told me about. But I don't know. I, I'm what, just, what what did you know? What's not to love? Uh, well, it's just know. a different. Uh, you just call it something other than film, and then I'm fine. Yeah, they couldn't need to come up with a word that rolls off the the tongue like movies because mm. VR immersive experience is just not <laughs> as uh, as easy to say, and so people are going to call it movies. The Vimmies. The Vimmies. Yeah. I'm going to go oh, to the trademark. <laughs> Pat- <patent pending. laughs> Keith just made one billion dollars. But ultimately, my excitement over another Matrix would have to do entirely with who's responsible for it. If it's a 
Rupert Sanders is <laughs> the <laughs> Matrix. I don't know if I'm really that excited, but if it's Shane Carruth or something visiting the world of the Matrix, that would be super great. So uh, it's all, it always depends on who's doing the imagining. My first thought when I found out the Wachowskis weren't going to be involved was, well, how how dare they? How would that even be a story? But now I'm kind of like, eh. You know, I like the other things that they're doing. I'm glad that they've moved on. I, when people stick to the same, when Michael Bay makes the same Transformers movie over and over and over, when uh, Jordan Peele is getting uh, pulled away from his theoretical four new horror films in order to do a remake of, oh, I've already forgotten what it was, but it made me sad. It wasn't the Akira remake they were trying to pull no, it's Akira. Well, no, Yeah, it is Akira. Jordan Peele's going to do Akira? That was, that was, he's, he was he's, he's being like eyed. A day and a half. He if he's smart, he'll walk away from it. There's no way. I doubt they'll even make it after Ghost in the Shell. I think they'll, it'll be that classic Hollywood, well, this didn't work, so we'll make nothing even faintly resembling it ever. <laughs> Although, you know, a little plot point, Bullet Time was actually inspired by Akira, the original Akira. There's stuff that goes on in that movie in terms of it's not that the action like slows down to a crawl, but when the sound drops away and things happen so coldly and clearly that you can like watch basically a world disintegrating and in slow time the Wachowskis actually cited that as one of their big inspirations and can we say that the matrix is quite an extraordinary film for a major studio to make uh the i mean the Wachowskis had done bound uh which if you've seen bound is a very stylish film that showed plenty of of potential but you know it's an indie noir film so to make the leap from there to something of this scale to have joel silver who is a producer known for more sort of vulgar action blockbuster filmmaking to have him on his producers is kind of interesting and then to do something that is though though based on every possible source you could imagine is an original film and is you know mind expanding and ambitious you know this is this is a huge gamble and 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 one that i don't know that studios even today have the uh, guts to try to do. Again. Yeah, I guess look back around, I don't really dread the idea of more movies in the Matrix universe, but I'd rather have the next Matrix, you know, mm-hmm. whatever that is. And it's so strange because, I mean, the Matrix came out of a, a deal that Warner Brothers made with the Wachowskis where basically they sold their script for Assassins. And instead of just selling a script for Assassins, they made a three-movie deal, which was Bound and The Matrix. And they pushed to direct Bound. And when it made money, they pushed to direct The Matrix. You look at those three films, and I mean, there are themes that run through all of everything that the Wachowskis do. But you look at those three films, and they, they don't feel like they have a lot in common. But let's wrap up with that. The the Wachowskis have both come out as transgender. And like looking back at their careers, you see over and over this idea of uh, transformation and body dysmorphia and gay themes and trans themes and just queer life themes. There are these things that run through everything they do. How do you see that playing out here? You got me thinking about Bound because I remember when Bound came out, I think if it had been exploitative and big oh it's girls doing it this time uh, <laughs> i don't think it would have, have caught on oh well it might have caught on in some circles but i don't think it would have been quite the, the sensation it wasn't that not it was. that it wasn't, <laughs> it not, wasn't that. not that no it's just definitely yeah there's, I saw the there's, film, there's huh? definitely yeah. no 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 there's definitely sex appeal to that film but it feels like in retrospect you can kind of see them playing a different sort of game which is playing these genre tropes straight to use the wrong word but perhaps <laughs> the most maybe the right word while changing the gender element and that's you know sort of the seed from which uh some of the stuff going on in the matrix and elsewhere uh, grew I, Yeah, I mean, I think it's very easy to look at the Matrix through a trans lens, just in terms of the body self-divide. I don't think it takes a whole lot of 
mental gymnastics to to see that metaphor there even though it's not by any means like a one-for-one metaphor you know it's more just like kind of a feeling of being disconnected from the version of you that is projected into the world and having the opportunity to recreate Mm. yourself yeah yeah i mean just the notion of reality as being uh plastic and transformable and and unbound by strict definitions or certainties about what we know to be True. Uh, I think that's certainly present in The Matrix and other films that they've done since. Well, I mean, I don't think in Cloud Atlas, I don't don't always think that the recycling of cast members as different characters in each story works in terms of people being able to pull it off. But it is certainly in keeping with that theme of transformation and and, uh, identity kind of going across different bodies and and, all different stories in this case. Yeah, and it plays out, I think, most overtly in Sense8, the show that they're doing now on Netflix. Which I still which need is, to catch up with. I, and the second season is coming out, so this is a good time for it. But, I mean, that is a show not only overtly with a, a trans character played by a trans actress doing a storyline that is very much about the pain of the trans experience. It's another story about transformation, about enlightenment and about kind of the next phase for the human race how much do they direct quite a bit actually lily dropped out of uh, the second season because she's apparently dealing with a lot of issues around her coming out lily and tom tickwer i think uh, did a great deal of the the direction and the writing for the series and i mean it's not it's definitely not as visually different as the matrix they're not doing as much uh, with the camera work and with the technology, but it's very much present in like the ambition of the storytelling, I would say. So uh, we'll get into a little more about the Wachowskis and <laughs> bodies and transformation and the huge gap that sometimes exists between our, how do we say, our ghosts and our shells <laughs> in part two of this conversation. But for the moment, we're going to do some listener feedback. We'll be right back with that. We had some interesting responses to our last podcast on Ridley Scott's original Alien movie and the new movie Life. Um, some of those letters were very long and in-depth, so we're picking some edited down selections from them. But you can find the full letters posted on our Facebook page. Uh, Keith, you want to read our first feedback letter? Sure. After listening to your episode diving into Alien, I was struck by the observation that the core elements of the franchise have barely evolved since its brilliant inception. An ironic fate for a film premised on the perils of facing your evolutionary superior in a fight to the death. You fixated on the corporate greed angle that is definitely present in every entry in the series, but I was left thinking about the sex and rape metaphor that culminates in the chestburster stage of the alien's lifespan. It had me wondering how the franchise's themes and discussions might have evolved if a later entry had given us an alien that didn't kill the host upon bursting from their chest. Would we find the entire premise just as horrifying if, after a reasonable recovery period and some reconstructive surgery, the human host could go on to live a relatively normal life? Would the rape analogy take on even greater resonance? Or would it somehow lessen the horror and stakes of the film if audience members couldn't see the alien strictly as a killing machine whose means of reproduction is simply unacceptable? I think that's a fascinating and really horrifying question. <laughs> I mean, for a, we, we discussed in some depth about uh, you know how Alien was fundamentally inspired by the idea of oral rape and male pregnancy. But it's also, I mean, it's kind of a traditional horror movie where the characters have to disappear one at a time. I don't think you could do that within the course of Alien. But given how the series has expanded into a larger world, I do think it's possible to have alien survivors, you know, people who have gotten chest bursted and 
I mean, we in Prometheus, we certainly see technology that <laughs> I was, could rescue I was someone from that. I was waiting to bring up the, mm. the abortion machine in Prometheus. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, a character that survives that experience and, and lives to tell about it. My problem there is I think it would break the metaphor down. I think having somebody talk about what it would be like to survive that experience suddenly takes it very much into the literal and it would it would be hard to maintain the metaphor. Yeah. I'm just picturing a really intense support group session. <laughs> People with like giant scars on their yeah. chests. Yeah. Uh, no, but that's interesting. It's a really interesting thought experiment though. I feel like if nothing else, like Octavia Butler has uh, has written some really interesting things about like horrible psychological and physical links between aliens and people that do kind of become rape metaphors, uh, survivable rape metaphors. And I think that something like that that's maybe a little more intellectual is maybe better suited to to exploring and continuing that metaphor than something that's so, I don't know, explosive. Mm, maybe. Uh, a listener named Christopher wrote us a couple long letters about gender in the alien movies and how alien isn't about monsters versus humanity. It's about machines versus humanity, um, which helps explain why Ash and the computer mother are on the alien side and why the alien is this sleek, streamlined, metallic thing. Uh, he also talked about how it pops out of machines. So it's literally like the the monster in the computer. There are a lot of like really interesting insights into the in those letters, um, which we're posting on Facebook. But I wanted to put focus on one part of them that, that specifically touches on life. Scott, you want to read that? Uh, sure. Uh, Christopher ends one of those letters with this. One small point related to life. You guys talked about the bad goodnight moon scene at the end. I wonder if this too is a derivative alien that does not work. Your description of it reminded me of Ripley singing a song as she's trying to get the alien out of the shuttle and blow out the airlock. I've always loved that detail in that scene and it sounds like once again, life may have taken that idea and screwed it up. I personally think this is kind of brilliant. <laughs> like it, it, this is the first thing that I've read that in any way explains to me what the hell that Goodnight Moon sequence is doing in that film. <laughs> yeah, it, because because there has to be some sort of one one to one relationship between everything that happens in Alien and everything that happens in life, right? Because uh, life is something of a knockoff of <laughs> Alien. Life finds a way to rip off Alien. Oh, there, there I think is. we I think we've really soured on life more since <laughs> since no. we recorded that. Just, just that scene. I mean, there are parts of life yeah. that I like, but yep. I thought that scene was was not only idiotic but just made no sense. And drawing that comparison between uh, Sigourney Weaver's like little little sad singing of lucky star as she's trying to like entertain herself in a caustic environment where she thinks she's going to die it it feels right like it feels emotionally like it is trying to hit the same beat i'll throw this out there for someone to make a connection i can't but the song is you are my lucky star from singing in the rain the other big science fiction movie of the 70s that used singing in the rain was clockwork orange so connect the dots somebody (laughs) what does it all mean wait so well, there's the Kubrick connection. Yeah. Sure. Give Refresh me. my memory on life. Is there material from the book Goodnight Moon that helps them figure out how, what to do? Is that, is that <laughs> does that happen? No. 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 So it's just it's just purely they're just at a point where it's time to start talking about Goodnight Moon because they're not in a good place, right? I, I think that what it's sort of meant to convey is just like their their smallness and helplessness and childishness in the face of this thing that's theoretically like older and bigger and more dangerous than they are but i mean it's played for this sort of i don't know twee melancholy like you know good night us 
good night, the fading of the light. Like that's the, sort of the the emotional content of it. Finally, we're still getting letters about Jordan Peele's movie Get Out as the film winds up its slow dominance march across the country. Genevieve, you want to read us the latest? Sure. Uh, JP found a way to merge alien analysis with Get Out analysis. Well done, JP. That letter reads, Get Out has us asking, what's the most respectful way for progressives to treat minorities? Aliens casting of Yafet Koto answers this with colorblind individualism. I find something deeply humanistic about the racially indifferent slash apolitical casting exhibited in the early films of Ridley Scott, George Romero, and especially John Carpenter. They introduce the world to Dwayne Jones, Ken Forey, Yafet Koto, and Keith David, not as black people, but as great actors playing interesting characters in stories that allow for post-racial characterization. I love Romero's modest insistence that he cast Jones in Night of the Living Dead, not because he was black, but, quote, because he was the best actor. I think the filmic equivalent to Rose's parents and Get Out would be mainstream message movies like Paul Haggis's Crash. I know I'd rather hang out with a doomed crew of the Nostromo simply because they wouldn't make me feel self-conscious about my cultural heritage. I'd be dying in better company. Better to live in better company. But yeah, I think that's a really great observation. I I mean, we've talked about the how uh, Yafat Kato's character just says so much about the the era that it's in, you know, the, or the, the era that it's set in, not the era it's made in, in terms of, you know, people of color have, can have blue collar jobs, can be bosses to white folk, can be, can sit at the same table with all of these uh, pale people, um, women and men sitting together at the same table and like all working these very physical jobs and they're all equals. And it's, unremarkable. It's completely unremarked on. And, you know, as Keith said, in reference to the comparative lack of people of color in Logan's run, it just it says something very different about that future. Yeah, it's a very interesting letter. And uh, I'm I'm glad that uh, John Carpenter is singled out here. I guess the the thought would be, you know, the future is going to have all sorts of other problems, but maybe, maybe, you know, racial division is not among them or something. I'm not, you know, I mean, at least they're not issues in talking about escape from New York or they live or the casting is very interesting. And and I I never really thought about it uh, until this letter. It's done a little bit in Aliens, though, when Bill Paxton's character teases Vasquez about when they said alien, they thought you said illegal alien or something. All right. Yeah. Vasquez played by a, uh, I believe, a Jewish woman. If I'm not mistaken, so uh, there's all kinds of things going on in that moment, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for colorblind individualism. I'm all for the idea that people of color can can play any role and that it doesn't have to be specifically the black character or the woman character or the Vietnamese character. But at the same time, there is really something to be said for also acknowledging, you know, acknowledging those tensions as Get Out does or as that illegal aliens moment does, acknowledging that there are really real world, you know, that all of these different positions come with experiences and bringing them into the story can give you just as much texture as bringing people into the uh, people of color or people of different genders into the story without underlining and remarking on it all the time. We can have both. It's kind of what diversity get means. You, get you a, a medium that can do both. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And that 
wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Ghost in the Shell and lay out how the films are connected, not just philosophically, but historically. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, eat your mush like a good kid. You don't need steak. You just need reality. Reality.